Christy Lefteri holds a PhD in creative writing from Brunel University where she was a lecturer for many years. She is the author of Songbirds and the award-winning international bestseller The Beekeeper of Aleppo. In this episode she spoke about influences on her writing, themes she is drawn to and about making of the new novel The Book of Fire. Welcome to our podcast uh, Harshneem Christie. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much for inviting me. You dreamt of uh, running your own magazine at a very early age. Tell us about it. I think maybe I was about 9 or 10. What I used to do, um I don't know, think about stories that were going on around me and write little articles and then I used to make put the articles together uh, uh make a whole magazine staple it and then pretend that I've made designed edited this magazine so I dreamt about being a writer from then I was about 9 or 10 years old so when did you start writing I think I was in year 4 which means I was about 9 and I was daydreaming in the class so she thought I wasn't listening so she phoned up my parents and she said look she's not she's not concentrating in english she is not doing very well in english so my parents panicked and they um got me an english tutor and the english tutor said to me the first day why don't you write this story so i wrote a story for him and he said wow he loved it so every week he used to get me to write a story for him and we used to read comprehensions so he chose comprehensions that had even at that age interesting themes you know about racism about women in society about about war or about you know something that he thought had an interesting subject that was also good for my age we would read these little stories and then he would say to me i want you to think about the themes in this comprehension and i want you to write your own story and we would do that week after week and he then said to my parents that she's he said to her she's amazing at english it's not that she wasn't concentrating it's that she was daydreaming so so what happened was he said to me one day he said you have something special in your writing he said one day you will be a writer you will write books and you will do a phd and everything he said was the truth you went back and met him after you finished your phd i bumped into him in asda asda is a superstore we have here and i told him i said to him you know and i i have so much to thank you for because you saw something in me and you i said to him you gave me such confidence to to feel that i i had something and that i could write and i've continued i said to him all my life and he was really tough phd in creative writing yes How did it help you as a writer? A lot. That I did an MA in creative writing as well, which also helped me. So how that helped me is that with the MA, we had a group of us that were all doing the MA, and we would, on a weekly basis, share our stories with each other, and then help each other to edit those stories. So we were workshopping, and that's essential. you learn so much from workshopping because then when you have a publisher sometimes you have one editor sometimes you have two three editors that are reading your stuff at the same time so you have to learn how do i 
um, use the critique. What do I listen to? What do I discard? How do I uh, um, take on board what people are saying, but also keep my own beliefs as well? How do I uh, allow myself to listen to what people are saying so that I can make my writing the best that it can be? So I learned all this a lot from the MA to begin with. And then when I did the PhD, I had two supervisors who were helping me to edit my work. But one thing I learned from the PhD, which I didn't learn a lot from the MA, this is this was more from the PhD, is the importance of research, the deep, deep research. So every time I write a book now, I do deep research for it. That's how I feel the PhD helped me in a way that I don't think I would have understood if I hadn't done the PhD. Now, you worked as a psychotherapist for a few years, right? Yeah. What made you take up that job? And uh, tell us about your experiences uh, during that stint. When I was doing uh, my English degree, MA, PhD, I often came across um, psychoanalytic theory, which I applied to uh, books I was reading. So, for example, when I did the PhD, I looked at uh, uh, Jung, Jungian theories. He was an analytical psychologist, so I used that theory to look at separate literature of independence. I wanted to understand why did they not just fight for independence? Why did they also want Enosis? Why did they also want to join with Greece, which created so many problems and then eventually contributed to the invasion that happened in 1974? So I looked at the, the literature at the time, the poetry during the war for independence, the fight for independence. Um, and, I, and I took Jungian theory and applied it to that. So I was always interested in psychoanalytic theory. When I finished the PhD, or actually while I was doing the PhD, I had some friends who were psychoanalysts and I became very interested in training. So I started a training in psychoanalytic psychotherapy because I wanted to understand the theory as much as I could because I found it fascinating. Uh, because I was very young at the time, I was 27, they, they, they slowed down my progression. So I did an introductory course. I attended lots of lectures, I attended theory seminars, you know, and I learned a lot. As the years went by, I did this for nearly nine years because by the time I got to the actual training course, it took me four or five years. And then the training itself is another four or five years. So by, by the time I did nine years of this, I realized I didn't want to be a clinician because I was working, while I was training, I was working as an honorary psychotherapist at a hospital called the Gordon Hospital in Westminster. And I was seeing patients once a week. And although I enjoyed it, I realized I didn't want to be a clinician. I wanted to use the theory to understand other people's writing more, to understand people more while I was doing my research and to put what I'd learned into my storytelling. So instead of becoming a clinician, I used it for my writing. Now, your parents are from Cyprus. Mm. They immigrated to UK before you were born. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about Cyprus and its uh, socio-political history. 
Well, the social political history is very long, <laughs> so I, I won't go into that too much. But um, you know, it's not too different from India. Uh, it, they were colonized. Cyprus was colonized by the British. Uh, before they were colonized by the British, they had a long history of being occupied by different uh, countries, the Ottomans, the Venetians. I mean, I could go back, back, back in time. It's a long history. But I'll start with the British uh, colonization because um, Cyprus became a British colony and eventually uh, the Cypriots wanted their independence and they started, in the 50s, they really started a, a battle for their independence, a bit like what happened in India. The, the problem with what happened in Cyprus, the difference was, instead of just saying, we're going to fight for our independence, we want our independence as Cypriots, this wasn't enough for them. They were saying, we're not Cypriot, we're Greek. Now, the problem, with, why is that a problem? Because... Cyprus was not just Greek Cypriots. Cyprus was Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots together. And they lived side by side. My parents came from a village, a town where uh, my dad was from a town. My mum was from a village where Turkish Cypriots lived next door. They, they, and so they were, then they started saying, no, we're Greek. We want to be part of Greece. We want to be a Greek island. And the Turkish neighbors said, well, if you become Greek, Greek from Greece, if you're connected to Greece, what happens to us? So during their fight for independence for the British, instead of keeping it simple and saying we want our independence as Cypriots, they started saying we want our independence, but we want to be Greek. The Turkish Cypriots got upset, then Turkey got upset, and then in 1974, after they gained their independence, um, the, the Turkey decided this was many years after they gained their independence. Um, Turkey decided uh, there was a coup. There, there was a lot of things that happened in between. A lot of problems between the Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots. Many problems. And then in 1974, the I believe the Turkish government used it as an excuse. We want to protect the Turkish Cypriots. They used it as an excuse. To invade the country, they took the top half of the country. Uh, my parents became refugees. Many people died. The uh, the Turkish Cypriots also had to leave from their houses in the south. Many people suffered. Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots suffered, and the island was divided and is still divided. Uh, so the novels you wrote, uh, three novels, uh, the um, Book of Fire the beekeeper Filippo and the songbird, they have a common theme. There is a deep human distress are created by a man-made calamity, So, which is contemporary again. Why do you think uh, you choose to tell those stories? Why do you get uh, attracted to those? And uh, does it have any personal connection? Yeah, and it's a lovely question you've asked me. And um, the reason I pause... Uh, and I paused when I read the questions because usually people ask me about this one book at a time. Now, what's interesting for me is thinking about all the books together that you've mentioned. And I think the the answer for me is that because of because I saw the trauma that my parents went through, 
because I was born sometime after the war, not too long after the war, and my dad was a commanding officer during that war. And I think I lived in a household where, yes, it was warm. We had a lot of love that my parents wanted to integrate into a new society. They also had their friends from Cyprus that moved to the same area. There was a lot of fun, food and warmth and love, but there was also trauma and darkness. And my dad was suffering from post-traumatic stress. And he wasn't talking about the war, so it got passed to us in a way that we couldn't understand this trauma. I think my answer is that I am drawn to subjects where people have been broken in some way and they have to find a way to love again and to live again. I'm drawn to those subjects, but also I'm drawn to subjects where as humans, although we can be loving, creative and many good things, we can also be destructive. So I'm, I think because of what I saw my family go through, I'm drawn to those subject matters. When I was little, I used to get up, I used to hear an aeroplane and jump up because I thought it was a bomb. And then open the curtain, I had these thick velvet pink curtains, you know, like the kind people had in the 80s, and open the curtain and see the aeroplane and, oh, and, you know, and lie down. And then... Years later, many years later, my uncle told me, my dad didn't tell me this, that my uncle, he, he used to stay in a, in a one bedroom, uh, no bedroom, a studio flat with my dad uh, right after the war. And so my dad used to wake up in the middle of the night, he said, and say, get your heads down. You know, and when he told me that story, I... It's like a jigsaw, something fit together in my head. Why do you write? I like your questions, Anil, um, because they, they really make me think. Um, why do I write? When I was a little girl, I always was writing, always. Even when my English teacher thought I wasn't concentrating, I was writing in my head. I feel that I have to write. Is it uh, therapeutic? Yes. It's, it's two things. It's difficult because I, I always write about difficult subjects, always. Even when I was a little girl, I write about things where my heart, it touches my heart, you know? If something touches my heart. So it's a difficult, often a subject matter that I'm writing about. But at the same time, it's therapeutic because it makes me focus. It makes things in order. You know, sometimes in life, we can distance ourselves from a problem, but that doesn't help. It forces me to go there with my eyes, my ears, my senses, my heart, with everything. And although it's difficult to go to those places, it can also be therapeutic because... Not only does it help you to understand those things better because you're working through something. Thankfully, now that I've been published, it, it makes me connect with other people who also um, feel things, have their own stories. This is, this is a very important part of my writing. Please introduce us to the novel Book of Fire. 
The Book of Fire is about a family who live in an ancient forest and that ancient forest has burnt down because of a fire that was deliberately started. But the fire became out of control and it's burnt so much of this beautiful forest and they have lost their home and they've lost loved ones and neighbours. And the story begins five months after the fire when Irini, the main character, walks into this burnt forest with her dog to take the dog for a walk and she always takes the same path. But this on this day, the dog goes off the path and she has to follow her. So she follows the dog and eventually reaches an old chestnut tree, which is half dead, half alive from the fire. It's an ancient tree. And underneath this tree is sitting the man who started the fire, who they talk, call Mr. Monk, because he was a very solitary man. And uh, he is half alive, half dead. And uh, she doesn't know, has he committed suicide or did someone try to kill him? And from that point on, she makes a decision that haunts her. So the story is about how much blame can we put on this man? But it's also about this family and how they recover or if they're able to recover from their trauma and how, whether they're able to uh, love life again and love each other again in the way they did before. When did you decide to write uh, the Book of Fire? And uh, how did you collect the information needed to write the novel? Because it talks about ecology, it talks about climate change and a lot of other things. My family and friends are a lot of them from Greece and Cyprus. Year after year, they were getting more anxious about the, the climate change and about the fires that were happening and they were getting worse and worse and so in 2021 when I was pregnant with Evie I was three months pregnant I decided to go to Madi and to uh, research I wanted to learn as much as I could about how people had been affected by a fire that had happened a big catastrophic fire that had happened there three years earlier um, and I went there, I stayed there, I looked at the landscape, I wanted to understand the changes that had happened, the forests that had burnt, the homes, that, the people that had lost their lives, their livelihoods. So I, I, sometimes it was interviewing people, hearing their stories, and sometimes it was just being there and taking it in and understanding as much as I could. So that was my first part of the research. When I came back to the UK, I decided that I wanted to learn more about wildfires and about climate change. And so I started to interview climate scientists. And I interviewed one man called Peter Stott, who wrote a book called Hot Air. If you want to read it, it's very interesting. It's about climate change denial. And then I was on the judging panel for the Royal Society of Science. And I met him at an event there. And I said to him, I loved your book. Please, can I interview you? And he said, well, of course. 
And his wife, Pirette, is an activist and an artist and a musician. And they've set up a website, have a look, Google, called Climate Stories. And it's stories about from people all around the world that have been affected by our changing climate. And so I interviewed both of them. I learned so much. And then he put me in contact with a friend of his who specializes in the Mediterranean region. And so I... I learned so much from all of this, from going to Muddy, interviewing people, talking to people, uh, being taken around by local to see how things had changed. It was a eye-opening, a very emotional experience actually being there while I was pregnant. At the same time, when I was there, the fire in Evia happened. Fire in Evia. It was at the same time. I didn't interview people from Evia because. It was too dangerous and it was too raw. But I was interviewing people who were trying to heal from their trauma while another fire was happening. And you said uh, they were denying that uh, it's because of the climate change. What I realized was that when people had been through so much like devastation and trauma, they wanted, this is what I learned from being there, um, because every time I mentioned climate change, I was not allowed to continue the conversation. I was shut down. And I, it's easy for me to then say, oh, look at these people. They're in denial. You know, stupid people. It's easy to do that. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to understand. And what I understood was that when people have been through such devastation, they wanted something tangible to hold on to. To blame. And it's true. A man did start the fire. The fire brigade and the police made massive mistakes and people died as a result. There's a court case, people were charged. These things are all true. My question was can these be things be true, but something else also be true? You know, the subject of global warming also true. And yes, a man started the fire, but the fire he started was maybe a small fire. And then the question is, why did it get so big? Why did it become catastrophic? Why are these fires becoming worse? So that was those were my questions that I started to develop in my own mind from talking to people and the scientists as well. I, I then developed these ideas and put them into the story. You have preempted my question. I think that's the reason uh, you have not made uh, uh, the character called Monk who started the fire. You have not made him the villain in the true sense. Yes, because everybody puts everything on his shoulders. It's easier that way. When it comes to writing, the way it is structured, interestingly, the narrator starts writing her own story in the book in the form of a journal. I felt it's a very impactful stylistic choice. So it uh, creates some kind of a meta-narrative in the story. What made you do that? Um, I guess the reason for that was because uh, during my time as a psychotherapist and during the research that I've done for Beekeeper, for Songbirds, for The Book of Fire, I learned that sometimes it's very difficult for people to tell their stories, to say, I went through this. When people 
sometimes find new ways to tell stories, sometimes in a negative way. For example, when I was researching the beekeeper, there was a man who was cutting his wrists every day and he lost his voice. That's in a way, it's a wailing your story of expressing your pain. Then there were women who made jewellery, who, who were sewing with the threads, the jewellery, and telling stories while they were doing this. This is another way. As I was growing up, sometimes I found it difficult to say, I feel this or I feel that. And I made characters who were not me. And so when um, Irini finds Mr. Monk, she says, I remember the fire. She feels like she's burning. But she wants to tell the story without burning, frightening for her. So instead of saying, I, I, I experienced the fire. I did this. I was here. I, did, I felt this. She tells it like a fairy tale. A little bit of a detachment to, in a way, it's an illusion. But sometimes we need that. Otherwise, things can be too raw and too painful and too dangerous for us that we find ways often in life to create a bit of a distance between us and our real emotions so that we don't get overwhelmed. So that's what Irini does. That's why I chose to do that. One of the, I would say, very moving passage in the novel is when uh, the mother and daughter, they jump into the sea. After that, you narrated, I think, two or three pages of how they feel in the fire, in the water and all that. So I was wondering, uh, how could you imagine and uh, write about it? I am interested in the creative process. Obviously, I have to gather my research and I absorb as much as I can. That's the first point. Then the second one is, but this is more of a personality thing. You have to go there. You, you have to just put yourself there and imagine it's almost like being in a dream, inside the dream, and you feel, I'm in the water, the fire is here, uh, the people are here, this is, and you, you put yourself in there completely. Does it affect you psychologically? Depends what I'm writing about. But it can be very stressful and very overwhelming. And it can also make me, you know, when we're alive, we have to take that for granted a little bit. <laughs> we have to, otherwise we go mad. We start realizing, oh my God, you know, we are these mortal beings and life is so fragile. I think what happens is if I'm writing about refugees or people who have lost so much, I start not being able to take things for, we have to, well, sometimes we say, don't take anything for granted, but we have to a little bit, otherwise we go mad. So I, I go on the other side and I could become too aware of being alive and that can be very stressful. And then after I finish writing, I, I, I start relaxing a little bit again. Now, your novels, right, they have been translated into 35 languages, I read. Do you collaborate with translators and how is it? Not too much. Sometimes I get a list of questions where someone will say, like uh, for the Book of Fire, the Swedish 
editor sent me a list of questions a few weeks ago and she wanted me to clarify a few things, which I did. But normally I don't hear from the translators. Not normally. Sometimes I do, but normally no. Please tell us about the new novel that you read. The new one. Because of something I was going through in my life, I started to think about after I gave birth to Evie, about myself as a woman in society and and how equal really we are in this day and age. And one day I was re I was watching TV and a female footballer started talking about today women's football and although it seems as though we've come a long way, if you scratch beneath the surface, it, it it reveals still to this day inequalities between men and women. And then she started talking about women's football during the First World War. A women who worked in the munitions factories and they created teams and the football became very, very, very popular, but then it got banned because they were women. And I became very interested. So I, I started to look into this and to research. And I, what I want to do is write two stories, two women, one during the First World War and one now where their lives are connected because they are both female footballers. Could you please read a couple of pages from the novel Book of Fire? Once upon a Harry Lime. This is how my dad started every story, even if the story was as true as the nose on his face. Once upon a Harry Lime, once upon a time. Because he was Greek and far from home, he wanted to belong so much that he used Cockney rhyming slang whenever he could slip it in, even when it sounded ridiculous. Yes, I remember those days when he came home from playing the buzzocki in smoky London tavernas, wearing that tattered fisherman's hat and reeking of cigarettes. He went out and played music all night so that he could soothe people's souls and bandage their hearts. People who wanted to be reminded of home because none of us ever want to forget where we came from. That's what he said. I would hear the key in the lock and wake up to get a hug and he would tell me a story so that I could get back to sleep. He would never return to his homeland, but I would go in his place following the man I love because it already felt like home. Once upon a hairy line, there was a beautiful village inside an ancient forest. How I wish I could start the story like this and tell you that it all took place a long time ago. Once upon a time before the fire, there was an ancient forest. Before the fire, there were pines and firs that reached up to the sky, and a thousand-year-old chestnut that my great-granddad sat beneath at the end of a hundred-day journey. Story goes, he was so exhausted that he stayed beneath the gigantic tree for days, leaning on its twisted bark in the cool shade. So he rested there, among rock lizards and dormice, white-breasted hedgehogs and beech marten, rabbits and deer, red foxes and jackals. He ate juicy purple figs and blackberries. At night, he listened to the howl of the wolves as they roamed the highlands. 
Thank you. Thank you, Christy, for this uh, wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for your questions and for being so lovely and for your interest in my writing and my research. Thank you. Thank you.